0: that we can gather on this beautiful sunny day and recognize that we are one in Christ all over the world. Grateful for brothers and sisters whose cultures are so different, but yet we are one in you. And I pray as we look at this passage in Peter's text about new relationships that you would be glorified in each and every family represented here today. Whether they're single, widowed, married, divorced, we just pray, Lord, that you be glorified in us as a body, bringing great unity to us and glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Have you guys ever noticed recently how loud commercials are on television? You know, you'll be watching a program, and it'll switch to the commercials, and they're s- they're blaring through, you know. And and my my stunningly beautiful wife, will, who loves peace and quiet, will go ah and mute it, you know. And uh, when the program comes back on, we bring it up. You know, it's become a practice over thirty-seven years of marriage. And so. I think that's interesting because Peter is telling us at verse 7, in a sense, when God sees me acting in a way that's unkind toward the people he's placed next to me, he can press the mute button on my prayers. That means it would be possible for me to spend an hour in my time with the Lord, go on a day retreat, never miss 52 weeks of Sundays a year, and have absolutely nothing of lasting spiritual value because the Lord has put the mute button on my prayers. One of the greatest dangers in the Christian life is a false spirituality that separates our relationship with God from our relationship with others. And it's easy to get the idea that my Christian life, my personal prayer, my church attendance, Bible study, all good things, are of any value, but none of them will be of any value if God presses the mute button on my prayers. God has a purpose for our lives, and our objective is to live in a way in our lives that glorifies God and brings him glory, and thus highly resistant people come to glorify God. And our first strategy, as we've seen in this new relationship section of Peter, is to speak redemptively to others. My, our second is to pray effectively. So you need to make sure that nothing hinders your prayers. Keeping the channel of prayer open is the theme of this section of Peter's letter. And Christian husbands, specifically, are to treat their wives with respect so that nothing hinders their prayers. Peter's going to continue this in verse 12 and say, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears attentive to their prayer. So if we are to fulfill our God-given purpose, we need to be able to pray effectively. For those who are married, this involves nurturing one another as husbands and wives. And for all Christian believers, it means developing healthy relationships within the family of God. You don't have to be married in order to be useful to God. Peter was married, but Paul wasn't. He was single, and God used him to spread the gospel across the Roman Empire. Nor do you need to be happily married in order to be useful to God. John Wesley had an awful marriage from the day he was married to the day he died. It was a disaster from the beginning, and it never improved. But God used him mightily to bring revival to a whole nation in the 18th century. Becoming a Christian may not transform your marriage, but it will transform you. You will change. Your calling is not to have a perfect marriage or a perfect family, but to honor God in the unique setting of your home. And P- P- Peter is giving us a picture of of what that looks like for wives and husbands in the passage that Iris read for us today. We're in this series in First Peter of living in a strange world and a culture that has shifted for us and we struggle to relate to. And so we're in this section where he describes the Christian life, not only that we are renewed in Christ, but our relationships are renewed. Last week we learned our relationships with our political leaders are renewed, and how we pray for them. We also learned how we relate to our employers. And today, we ter- the passage turns to the institution in marriage. Now, I must point out that Christian women, regardless of their marital status, have too often been subjected to degrading explanations and very abusive applications right from this text. Therefore, given the pain that can be evoked by this passage, I want to say a few things about Peter's call to submission, what it does not mean for Christian wives. It does not mean that if your husband asks you to abandon faith in Christ or compromise your faith in Christ, that you must do so. It does not mean that if your husband asks you to sin, you should do so. It does not mean that you must always agree with him and never present a differing view It does not mean that if he is unfaithful to you, you are left without biblical recourse. It does not mean that if he abuses you physically or abandons you through incessant verbal humiliation, you must remain quiet in the home and accept the daily cruelty of that relationship at all costs. What Peter does do in this text is to lay down a a single principle It's the same principle of submission that we saw last week. Verse 13 of chapter 2, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution. We find this biblical principle of submission from this point on is the entire theme of the letter. It's its gravitational pull and the principle of submission directly relates to the example and person of Christ and his submission to his heavenly father at the end of chapter 2. So the submission of which Peter speaks is not an adherence to a principle. It's an adherence and obedience to a person who compels us to submit in order to live the flourishing, abundant Christian life. So in all three cases, Christians are to present themselves before a watching world as people who emulate Jesus. He is our our example. And in so doing... We present the world a fresh and vibrant picture of the living hope that's spoken about in chapter 1. And clearly that's the logic of these opening verses. And equally clear are Peter's desire that his words apply to all Christian wives, not just those who are married to unbelieving husbands. For the text says, even if some did not obey the word. So the force behind the words are looking at all Christian wives. So what does it look like? What does the living hope look like in a Christian woman, Christian wife? Peter begins his answer just as he did in chapter 1 and verse 4 by describing our internal inheritance by way of contrast. He tells us that good deeds and honorable conduct that does not look like in Christian wives. Verse 3. First, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. Peter's culture, like our own, had an obsession with external appearances. Women were under enormous pressure back then and today to look like tens. They were fixated on their hair, the wearing of jewelry and clothing. And in response, Christian Peter wants Christian women not to be overly concerned about external appearances. But you know, you heard Iris read that text, and some of you were thinking like Amelia Bedelia. (laughs) You remember that story? Amelia Bedelia, she's the household servant for Mr. and Mrs. Rogers, and she took everything literally, woodenly. They said, Amelia, make us a sponge cake. So what'd she do? She put sponges in a cake and baked it. They said, Amelia Bedelia pitched the tent. So she went outside, took the tent, and threw it into the woods. You know? Amelia Bedelia's interpretation of this verse would leave women without any braiding of hair, wearing of nice clothes, or wearing of jewelry. And Peter is not advocating any such thing. His concern is one of emphasis. The pressures placed on Christian women by today's culture is nothing short of oppressive. Women today walk into a store being bombarded with shelves devoted to hair products, jewelry, and beauty, all sending the message that they are inadequate, their closets are inadequate, and all they need is some $500 wrinkle cream and they'll be (laughs) A-OK. The passion for external adornment comes at a terrible cost for today's women. The sense of never looking good enough, never being pretty enough, never measuring up. Women are made to feel inferior, ugly, and unlovable, and social media makes it worse. So it is with a sense of irony that the Bible leads the way against such oppression and that Peter thinks more highly of women than does the culture in which we live. Peter wants to free women from the obscene obsession of having to look like a ten when you step out of the door in the morning. So, what are Christian women to be concerned about instead? Verse four: But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, in which God's sight is very precious. Peter calls upon Christian wives and women to adorn themselves with the imperishable beauty, located. In the hidden person of the heart. Literally, he's asking wives to be concerned to dress the inner person. Peter tells Christian women to pay attention to the adornment which they are addressing the interior of their souls. Arise, daughters. Put your feet on the ground and get dressed from the inside out. Furthermore, he desires that they cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit, and by way of application, women should consider how much time it takes to prepare to getting ready in the morning, and then see that Peter is urging them to take time to adorn the inner person as well. Christian women ought to be known for putting on the clothing of Christ, who was gentle and lowly. The motivation for taking the time to adorn their souls is now put forward by Peter in the later half of verse 4 it says that they're when they do so, it is precious in God's sight. In other words, when God looks upon them, he's glad to have her for his bride. Men, fathers, is this the kind of woman we are teaching our sons to look for in a potential spouse? Young men, this is the type of spouse you need to be looking for. Is this what we ourselves appreciate most in our wives? Are our hearts in tune with the heart of God concerning what is considered precious to God in them? So he goes on to provide an illustration for every woman to follow. And it's phenomenal. Verse 5 for this is how the of women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Because let's be honest, submitting to your husbands is frightening. Because I saw your faces. You're going to say, what? Right? Because that's our culture. I get it. We get it. When he wanted to put forward someone with a gentle and quiet spirit, he selected Sarah, the wife of Abraham. And we can all thank God and Peter for doing so, because Sarah was no shrinking violet. (laughs) She wasn't a weak person. She was a strong woman. She had real faith. She was real. And the scriptures portray her faith as precious and beautiful. She's the perfect choice. When Christian women hear preachers call upon them to put on a gentle and quiet spirit, the culture will bombard their minds in an effort to convince them that taking God's word is asking them to be weak, and nothing could be further from the truth. Our culture is constantly trying to make women think that applying this principle will be a setback to women everywhere. And Peter says, no, 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 no. Follow Sarah. Sarah was a woman who got into her husband's face on more than one occasion, okay? And he needed it, just like all us men need it. In some ways, Sarah had it easier. Concerning this call to be gentle and quiet, remember, Sarah had servants. Does anybody have servants here? Hello? No, right? She did. She had help. So why does Peter draw our attention to Sarah? It's because she lived out God's principle of submission, recognizing that before God, Abraham was responsible for the whole family. That's not her responsibility. Her responsibility is to follow his lead. She can question his lead. She can talk about his leading. She can chime in. If he's smart, he'll listen to her. Right? But she calls him Lord, so I went in the Bible to where she does call him Lord. You know where it is. Genesis chapter 18, the angels said to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. That's impossible. Sarah's old. And Sarah was listening at the tent door. Behind him, now Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? (laughs) The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Interestingly, Sarah's laughter betrayed her sense of disbelief, her nervous verbal wonderment, the idea that God could fulfill in her a promise for a son. So God replies, in effect, is anything impossible with me? Anything? She's frightened, and she should be. But the laughter of Sarah can still be heard behind the curtain of our tents today. The voices of many women who hear these words are likely to exclaim, you got to be kidding me. That's ridiculous. Follow him. God will keep his promises to you, sisters, just like he kept his promise to Sarah. Will he keep me safe in this relationship? Peter says, yeah, God can be trusted. Women who give themselves to this pattern of life, though it's frightening, verse 6, will need to be those whom God meets in their hour of need. Those who entrust themselves to God will find that he will keep his word to them. And what has he promised? You have been born again to a living hope. and You shall receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. You can trust God to keep his word. That's what Peter has been saying throughout this letter. And trust yourself to God and God will be with you. So whatever situation, an unjust official, an oppressive employer, a difficult husband, Peter wants you to know that God will deliver you. He can be trusted. And not only that, he wants you to know that when you live according to the pattern of this submission, because you're submitting to the Lord first... Then unto him, when you trust yourself to God's word, you show yourself to be a living a life modeled by Jesus and righteous Sarah. Concerning Jesus, because Peter's already shown us that he walked the entrusting way, therefore he was honored by God. Before he was honored by God. and Concerning the righteous Sarah, Peter's about to quote Psalm 34 next week, which promises that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. He doesn't mute their prayers. Later in 419, Peter will say concerning the righteous, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The women living out that pattern through a proper adornment of the soul will herself be like Jesus and the righteous Sarah. Sarah. When Christian women adorn themselves with this gentleness and quietness, what do they get? They get strength, they get dignity, and they have great hope. Now, the dilemma for so many today is the view that the the power in the relationship is the personal goal. It's always been. But the Bible says that strength and dignity should be our goal in our relationships. And this alone allows Christian women to do something spectacular. It's shown in Proverbs 31, verse 25, at the latter half. It says, she laughs at the time to come. Same Hebrew word for Sarah laughing. It's beautiful. She laughs, the laughter of entrusting faith. So in this passage, we've seen the befuddled laughter of Sarah, who questioned God's ability to keep his word. We've heard the incredulous laughter of women in the modern era who disbelieve God's word. And we see that Christian women gain irrepressible encouragement and laughter of the wonderfully righteous woman in Proverbs who it is said that her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her, giving her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Men, husbands, But the call upon the Christian wife is as strong as Peter claims. She deserves your praise. She deserves your honor. Your devotion, your adoration, your care, and your abiding love. Rise up. Give her the fruit of her hands and praise her all the days of her life. So then in one verse, he turns to to men And it's just as weighty as the previous six, quite honestly. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. If you're a husband, knowing and understanding your wife is your greatest privilege, and it's your greatest challenge. Literally translated, Peter calls the husband is to live your wife according to knowledge. Your wife is not like any other woman God has ever made. Your job is to know her, to understand her, to listen to her well, to learn what makes her happy and to pursue that. Discover her hurts, what hurts her and avoid it. Your wife has unique struggles, fears, hopes and dreams and you need to understand them And let that knowledge shape the way you live with her and lead her gentle and lowly like our Savior. Paul says, submit to one another out of a love for Christ. You know, as Peter doesn't say as much about all that stuff, Paul gets really deep with it. Peter, he's not concerned with that. He's just saying, look, live with her, understand her, work to know her. God has called you to listen to her with your heart. Let it never be said that her friends or her counselor knows her better than you do. And so, work at getting to know her until it can truly be said that you do understand her better than anyone else. Remember that this is a lifelong calling. Your wife is not the woman that you dated 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago. You discover who she is today and understand what God is doing in her life today. Living out this one statement will change you and it will change your marriage. Treating your wife with respect means honoring her by placing her in a high, exalted position. Your wife has chosen to give herself to you for crying out loud. To you! Why? A large part of her happiness or misery will flow from the way you treat her, the way you speak to her. So make sure you regard her as a sacred trust from God. Cherish her. Honor her with your time. Honor her with your money. Honor her with your ears. Honor her with your questions. That's servant leadership. Taking the initiative in every aspect of your relationship, spiritually, materially, relationally, parenting, grandparenting. Use your strength to support her and to bless her. Speak to her in a way that makes her feel that she's honored. Speak about her with praise to others so that she'll be exalted in their eyes. Peter describes your wife as a weaker partner, and that description you may not recognize if you're married to a strong woman. There's a growing trend in Western society for women to become the front runners of the family life, and one effect of that is that husbands get very lazy. And the wife becomes an enabler of that laziness because of that. Men who know how to take initiative, to take their initiative, to take the responsibility as being the servant leader, and make things happen at work, sometimes or surprisingly happen to be passive at home. Men, don't fall into that trap. God wants you to be an initiative taker in the interests of your wife and in your family. The importance of these things is clear from the reason Peter gives for pursuing them, verse 7, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Why are my prayers bouncing off the ceiling? Are you loving her? Are you caring for her? Are you understanding her? Do you know her? That might be it. If you want to be useful to God, make sure that you do everything possible to cultivate your marriage. Changing the world begins at home. Living a life of love starts with loving those whom God has placed next to you. So therefore, men, love your wives, as Paul says, as Christ loved the church. Laying down everything and serving her, listening, being a man worth following. Sisters, work on your growth in the Lord which is imperishable as much as you work on your outward appearance. And it's never too late. Ever too late. Rick and Beverly Weeks had a Cinderella wedding 25 years ago. It was going great. They had this beautiful, cute house out in the country. It was gorgeous. He had a great job. She had a great job. And then they had kids, and like all relationships, their communication kind of broke down after a while. They didn't take any time for one another. They grew apart. His heavy workload plus Beverly's demanding job added to the kids, the activities, and they went to a good church, left little time for them to focus on one another. Cinderella and her prince became more and more isolated from one another. Beverly longed to hear Rick say, I love you, which he rarely said. She was also sensitive about the weight that she was gaining since she'd had kids. In one argument, Rick called her fat. She repeated those hurtful words to herself over and over and over again, unable to really communicate with her husband. Beverly needed a friend, and she found one, a man at church who was also having problems in his marriage. He's just a good Christian friend, she told herself. He's the brother that I never had. He really understands me. He doesn't judge me. So about six months, Beverly and her friend communicated daily over a cup of coffee, lunch, a visit on the phone, when she couldn't talk heart-to-heart with Rick, when her father fell ill, Her friend was the one that she contacted. They were exchanging in 2010, 20 to 30 texts a day. Beverly made sure she erased them so Rick wouldn't see them. So she tried her best to deny that she was having an emotional affair. It wasn't a physical affair, but it was emotional. But in her heart, she knew that the relationship was endangering her marriage. So she began to see a counselor at this time, and the counselor was telling Beverly everything that she wanted to hear. Beverly says, and I was really sharing with her my side of the story, not Rick's. She told the counselor that Rick seemed more interested in his job than her, and said that he had called her names in front of the children, but she didn't mention that his snide remarks were a response to her, to her really disrespectful words and tone. I knew exactly which buttons to push to set him off. When she told the counselor that she didn't love Rick anymore, the counselor told her, well, Beverly, you deserve better. You deserve someone who will give you all the happiness that you deserve. So she told him, I don't love you anymore. And he was devastated. So he packed up a few things and left the house but he really had nowhere to go, and he thought to himself, how could Beverly have lost her love for him? Surely she didn't mean what she said. She'd been under a lot of pressure that year. She had a commission-only job, stressful, and her father was ill, and she's helping raise the kids. So he returned home just to have that conversation, but she told him she didn't want him back. Rick did everything that he could to win her back. Bought her flowers, texted her every day, wrote her letters, handwritten finally he told god i can't do it i know you're there i know you're you i need you to handle this for me so he started to read marriage books reflect on the psalms how could he have missed after he really began to dig deep into the word these great foundational truths he took full responsibility for his marriage problems He had not loved Beverly in the way that she understood. He didn't know her, really. So a friend at the hospital suggested they meet with Pastor Scott and Sherry Jennings at the Bridge Church in North Carolina where they lived. And And to meet with them, they had their own broken relationship problems that the Lord had restored. And so they began at the Bridge Church to take the art of marriage course put on by Family Life. We realized that we had to put Christ back into our lives and into our marriage. Beverly says, I also learned why I battled with such low self-esteem. I expected Rick to be my God. But I discovered the one who takes me as I am no matter what. And Rick learned to do the same. I needed more than religion. I needed a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, she writes. Rick began to change. Bev began to change. Rick took the initiative, not perfectly. But the effort was there to be the servant leader, cherishing her, loving her, and leading her spiritually. And Bev served under his leadership, gave input. He listened to that input. And their hearts were warmed to one another. And today, Beverly and Rick go around the country telling the story of their transformed lives and how God transformed their marriage. Before the last stroke of midnight sounded, they found hope. And they want to give that same sense of hope to others. Brothers and sisters, God gave marriage as an object lesson for the world, as a witness to what his great love for us is in Jesus Christ. May our marriages... May our singles, may our widows and widowers all reflect and emulate Jesus' love to one another. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this message which is difficult in our culture and yet absolutely necessary for the witness to our culture. That our culture would look at our relationships and say there's something different about you because of the amazing grace that you give to each and every one of us. I pray for every single family represented here this morning that no matter where they are, that they would grow in that knowledge and love of you, Lord Jesus Christ, and the reality of your great love for us and great love for the world through our Savior Jesus Christ, and that would be a shining example of that grace for years and years to come, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen.